This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep, there's only one. Visit Jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Sarah Rigby, online staff writer at BBC Science Focus magazine. Joining me on this week's episode is Dr. Michael Mosley. He's a former medical doctor, health writer and presenter of the podcast Just One Thing on BBC Sounds. He tells me all about the simple lifestyle changes we can all make to improve our health and well-being. First of all, could you please just tell us a bit about your podcast, Just One Thing. Sure. So the idea of this podcast um, came uh, from uh, a bunch of independent producers. And what they said to me is, do you fancy doing a podcast series, which will be bite-sized? It'll just be 15 minutes ago. And the idea is that in each one, we will explore just one thing that you can do, which is kind of simple and easy and you can fit into your life but which could, you know, transform your life or at least uh, improve your life in ways you might not predict. And um, they came up with a sort of a short list, which included things like brisk early morning walks or cold showers. Um, and they seemed to me very doable. And so the idea is that in each episode, I do it. Uh, we get a volunteer, a member of the public, to give it a go as well for a week or so. And I also interview an expert in the area who knows a lot about cold water immersion or whatever it might be. And um, yeah, so it's um, partly an immersive experience and partly you're learning from the experts and to some extent from me and from the willing guinea pigs about what the experience is like. And each week it's different. So the 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 things, the just one thing things that you include, they tend to be quite easy, quite small things that you can do. If, for example, my I have quite an unhealthy lifestyle. Can I do just small things like this and get healthier or or 
can they really replace larger lifestyle changes? I think um, what the research shows is that we may, you know, on January the 1st or whatever, come up with all these New Year's resolutions and say we're going to lose two stone or, you know, 20 kilos and take up a marathon. But uh, when you have these sort of goals, they very rarely followed through. Uh, and the, the more successful goals tend to be the ones where they are bite-sized, where you think, oh, yeah, I could do that. I could tag that onto my life. And a lot of it is about actually finding things you're already doing and then tagging these onto them. Um, because if you find it really difficult, if it's really challenging, uh, then frequently people start and then they give up because it's too big a change. So the idea of these is, yes, uh, they are relatively simple, but they accumulate. Um, and that if you do do them, um, then, yeah, you can um, make some significant changes in a remarkably short period of time. So, for example, going for a brisk early morning walk. It's something that most of us could probably do. Most of us probably don't do. Uh, but the research shows, particularly if you're sedentary, uh, then doing a walk of any form is good. But um, if you can do it briskly, um, and in that particular episode, I also explore the power of music to drive you along um, so that you pick up the pace. And we look at the kind of science of being, you know, why would you want to do it in the morning rather than the afternoon or the evening? So there's more sort of elements to it. But the simple premise, you know, go for a 15-minute walk is something which is eminently achievable. And there is a lot of science now which suggests that um, doing something as simple as that, particularly, as I said, if you're starting off from a very low base, uh, that that can make a significant difference. So you're on your second series of the podcast now. So you've got you suggested quite a lot of different lifestyle changes that I can make, but I, I think I might struggle to incorporate all of them into my life in one go. So if I am going to choose one, how would I go about choosing one from all of the topics that you've covered? I think one thing you can do is obviously go to uh, BBC Sounds and look at the list and see which ones you fancy, basically, uh, because um, you have to be willing to do it. You have to be interested in wanting to do it. And then it has to be something you can fit into your life. Um, so that is really my best advice. You look at it and go, oh, yeah, I could do that. Or, oh, no, that doesn't really grab me. That doesn't um, isn't something I want to do. I'm already, for example, going out for early morning runs, so I don't need to uh, throw in a uh, early morning walk on top of that. Uh, but you may be someone who's got a kind of sweet tooth. You've been wanting to give up some of the uh, more obviously sugary stuff. Um, you're eating a lot of buns and um, and you think, oh, I could try the dark chocolate challenge. And you'd kind of dig into that and you'd look at the science around that. And uh, uh, I certainly find that um, if I have dark chocolate in the house and we do explore uh, the sort of science around dark chocolate, because it's less sugary, um, and because it's richer in cocoa and because it's richer in flavonoids, uh, then um, I am less inclined to eat lots of it. So if it's a bar of milky chocolate, I'll eat the whole thing. Uh, but with dark chocolate, I'm quite happy to take a square or two. Uh, and uh, that's that, you know, I can put it aside and forget about it. Uh, whereas I really, really can't do that. <laughs> with uh, with the milky stuff. So uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a way of changing a particular habit. And um, hopefully over time, uh, your longing for the other stuff will fade. But it, um, I have to say with me, it's taken a long time. I still feel longing, but I just um, have replaced it with a different thing. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, um, on each episode, you get a member of the public in to test out this thing. Whose life has changed the most over the course of the experiments that you've done with them? Interesting. I'm not entirely sure. They had different sort of goals. Um, in, uh, the, uh, in the case of the chocolate, we had um, a, a nurse who was 
very keen to lose a bit of weight, get a bit healthier. She spends a lot of her time, as is often the case when you are working in a hospital, there's um, the patients leave you sort of big uh, piles of chocolate and gifts and things like that on the station and you wander by and you um, munch them down. And she found that simply substituting it for uh, dark chocolate did make quite a big difference. And she was very enthusiastic about that. She lost some weight, but she also found that her sweet tooth diminished. Um, on the other hand, we had a guy who was very keen on, uh, he's a goalie and he wants to be a, uh, he's He's amateur. Uh, he's a goalie, but he wants to be uh, a striker. Um, so I got him to uh, spend a while doing a sort of visualization technique, uh, which is in one of the episodes. And um, he uh, has become a sort of uh, a goal scoring phenomena since um, that episode. So uh, I think uh, he's very grateful for it. But uh, each person has sort of uh, derived benefits in different forms. Oh, I'm glad to hear that he did end up getting his his dream of being a striker. I can sometimes be a bit lazy. And so if I want to do one of these things that will improve my health, can you recommend to me one that is really, really easy? What is the easiest one of your of your suggestions? Okay, probably the easiest one of the suggestions is to buy more houseplants in the sense that, you know, it doesn't require, well, you have to water them. I hope you're uh, able to do that. So, uh, and that was kind of a really fascinating episode. Um, I have some houseplants, but I went out and bought a load more afterwards. And um, the reason for the houseplants is there's a lot of evidence showing that having houseplants, particularly around in a, you call them houseplants, it could be office plants, but basically having more brightly coloured plants and things like that um, around your office or around your home, uh, they make you feel better just seeing vegetation in the house, but also uh, they help uh, to absorb and scrub out um, some of the uh, volatile chemicals which um, our houses, and particularly as we go into winter, this and we lock all our windows and doors and you know huddle up indoors. Uh, this is quite a big thing. Uh, furniture exudes some of these things, and the other thing is that um, it gets drier during the winter months. Uh, particularly, we got central heating on, and we know that will also dry out the sort of mucus. Uh, in your airways and in your nose, uh, which will make you more vulnerable to infection. There are a lot of nasty bugs going around at the moment, not just COVID-19, uh, but the flu, uh, some pretty vicious cold viruses hanging around as well. Um, so having a few houseplants around uh, helps to humidify the air. Um, so that could keep your um, mucus in good slimy form. Uh, and um, on top of that, um, I just, you know, as I said, there's just psychological thing about it and it's just nice as well having them there uh, to chat to and nurture a bit so um, go for the house plants that's certainly um, probably one of the easiest things you can do mm, yeah I do like having house plants um, and I, I find it kind of stressful sometimes you know if one starts to die then I get I get a bit too uh, worked up about it and I'm like what am I doing wrong but it's also it's um it's uh, easy to feel really proud of yourself when it starts to grow or when it gets a new leaf or, in, or it starts to flower Absolutely. And you can share it with other people. Um, what Years ago, I did a, I was making a series called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And one of the things that really surprised me there was we were looking at um, air pollution. And uh, there was some research which suggested that silver birch trees are a very good way of trapping the sort of microparticles that come out of lorries and buses and things like that. And so the producer suggested that we get these houses on quite a busy road and we plant birch trees outside in pots. 
And I thought this is ludicrous. A few birch trees are not going to make any difference whatsoever. Uh, but uh, he persuaded me otherwise. And the academic um, said that she believed it might work. And indeed, um, we did that. And we uh, sort of swabbed the house beforehand and swabbed the house uh, three or four weeks later um, after the birch trees had been outside. And we did see it had led to a significant drop in the sort of particulate matter uh, that had sort of come in through the windows and settled on the equipment and stuff like that. So just having a few more trees around um, seemed to make a big difference. Um, so, uh, yeah, houseplants obviously not as big as birch trees, but if you get enough of them, uh, then uh, and as long as you don't get too stressed by them, it's supposed to be a sort of, you know, pleasurable activity. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so how do plants actually absorb air pollutants? Well, it seems to be to do with the sort of uh, the surface area of the stoma uh, that, um, as I understand it, and I'm no expert on this, which is why we always get an expert in, uh, that what they do is they trap, and particularly on the fine sort of hair sometimes on the plants, uh, they trap some of these particles. And when you sort of water them, they get sort of washed away. That's certainly what seems to happen with birch trees. The other thing that um, having a few more houseplants can do is also have a sort of small but perhaps significant effect on the carbon dioxide levels in your room. Because again, if it gets a bit foggy and things like that, then um, plants will be uh, there pumping out a bit of oxygen. Though you need to keep them in a sort of a nice space where they are uh, getting in decent light. Um, I think on that particular episode, they give you the names. I can't remember the names of the plants that our expert was recommending. Uh, but she said you need kind of vigorous ones that grow quite readily and which love a bit. They generally love a bit of light. But um, the Royal Horticultural Society um, is a good place to go if you're wondering what sort of houseplants um, I should be having. So do you think you would notice the difference in air quality? I don't know. Certainly the studies that uh, our expert were talking about were largely carried out in office buildings. And what they did is they uh, were looking at uh, more psychological aspects. So they were looking at productivity, they were measuring well-being, they were measuring things like that. And in one of the experiments, what they did is they took, they put the plants there, left them there for sort of four months, and then they took them away. And people got really quite upset about it when they went away. They didn't realize they were going to miss them. Um, so uh, NASA did an experiment years and years ago uh, in which they put houseplants uh, in a capsule. This was on the ground to see the impact of that. And it didn't seem to make a difference to the air quality, but whether up in um, the space station they currently have houseplants, I haven't noticed any, uh, but I suspect it's probably a bit tricky and they have a other means of keeping uh, you know, the air properly filtered. I, as I said, I, I suspect with houseplants, most of the benefit comes from the sort of the joy of having them around with some uh, some impact on things that come uh, dioxide levels and also some effect on hydration and some effect on um, air pollution levels. So do you think that's related to studies that sort of suggest that we we tend to feel happier and more relaxed when we get to look at nature and green spaces? Absolutely. And that was another episode we uh, did, which was um, spending time in green spaces. That was in the um, first episode. And the um, Japanese have an expression for it. They call it forest bathing. And the idea is that you go and, again, you spend time in green spaces. Uh, it could be a wood. It could be a park. Uh, they haven't yet explored blue spaces, i.e. spending time down by the sea or by a lake. But I suspect it's the same sort of thing. Uh, the added benefit of trees is that they produce a range of volatile chemicals, uh, which um, we seem to enjoy. 
which would kind of make sense since uh, we have a sort of, you know, <laughs> our ancestors would have been spending quite a lot of time in the trees, our very remote ancestors. Uh, and uh, we know, for example, again, another study showed that um, spending time in green spaces, particularly in forests, uh, was associated with increased uh, production of natural killer cells. Um, so it could well be that, uh, you know, doing that would um, help benefit your immune system. And again, there's a strong psychological component to it. And um, I like it. I mean, I love woods and things like that and open spaces. And I'm very fortunate because we're kind of uh, uh, near a wood. And um, so I can combine several things in one go. I can get up early. I go off. I go for a run or a walk with a dog uh, through the wood. Um, I'm walking briskly. I'm getting my 100, 120 paces a minute. Uh, and I'm also spending time sort of sniffing the trees as I go. So uh, you can knock off quite a few just one things in one go. And uh, and that's a good thing. You can combine them with other stuff. So it all adds up. And so another one you could actually add in there was one of your episodes is about getting more sunlight. It sounds a bit counterintuitive to me because I thought we were supposed to try and sort of reduce the amount of sunlight we get, especially in the summer months, so that we don't, you know, get sunburn and things like that. Yeah, so there are two different elements to it. One is uh, early morning exposure to light, uh, which is about resetting your internal clock because we know that um, sunlight is, particularly early morning light, is very good for resetting the circadian clock. Um, and uh, that also should help uh, things like uh, sleep. But pretty well, everything is driven by the clock, or at least the series of clocks that exist within you. And they are triggered by a number of things, but light seems to be one of the most important things. But then there's sort of exposure to um, ultraviolet light, which is kind of more sunlight, which is more you're talking about. And... Um, we were talking about it in the context of two things. Really, one is vitamin D, and the other is the impact of sunlight on mood and also on blood pressure. And they seem to be independent effects. So what I was recommending in that particular episode was in the sort of summer months or the spring and summer, and that's really between March and about September. Uh, the British sun is a good source of free vitamin D, and you go out there for about 10 minutes with your uh, sleeves rolled up and your socks rolled up, probably more like half an hour if you are Asian or Afro-Caribbean ethnicity because darker skin takes longer to generate vitamin D. Uh, and that seems to be enough. 10 minutes is kind of enough to generate vitamin D without burning. And there is a, a sort of a view which says that we have got a little bit too concerned about the impact of ultraviolet light on our skin, that clearly going out there burning, going red, uh, peeling is not a great idea. But on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of people who are chronically vitamin D deprived, and that's because they spend a lot of time indoors. Because you can get vitamin D from things like oily fish, uh, but frankly, you're unlikely to get enough. And so the majority of it comes from the you know reaction of the sun on your skin. And uh, by the depths of winter, it's, um, you know, particularly if you are you know, Asian ethnicity, then something like a quarter um, of um, Asians uh, or people with an Asian background uh, are either chronically or seriously depleted of vitamin D. And we know vitamin D is important for a whole, whole range of things. Um, so that's kind of why we were doing the episode uh, and um, giving you an opportunity to uh, store up a bit more. Unfortunately, by now, by October and November time, uh, it's too late. 
that the British wind, I'm, well, the expert, I said, look, in theory, you could. If it's a bright, sunny day, you strip down naked and stand outside in the garden for a couple of hours, you might be able to generate some vitamin D. But to be honest, um, you know, I don't think many of us are going to be doing that. So it's, you know, it's, it's a bit too weak. So it's either the sunshine holiday abroad uh, or it's um, uh, eating or, uh, more oily fish, but probably it's supplementing. And the NHS now advises pretty well all adults to supplement uh, between October and March. And if you have a darker skin, they actually recommend you supplement all the way around the year. And we know uh, the, uh, the vitamin D is so unbelievably important because it is, you know, probably one of the best explanations for why uh, our ancestors were had darker skins. They came from Africa. When they came to Europe, when they spread throughout Europe, they became paler. Uh, and that was almost certainly because, you know, as you head north, uh, then you get um, less vitamin D or less opportunity to generate vitamin D. And with the sole exception of the Inuit up in the north, the further north you go, the paler people get. And the reason, or at least the theory as to why the Inuit uh, are not pale, is because they get their vitamin D from fish and from blubber and you know very other rich sources of vitamin D, which most of us don't have access to. So something which could actually, you know, change skin color or drive the changes in skin color is obviously really rather important uh, for our health. It's particularly true of women um, who need a lot of vitamin D, particularly um, during pregnancy and periods like that. But again, we know vitamin D important for bones, important for immune system, important for a whole load of things. So, yeah, um, I'm afraid you've missed the opportunity to get a free supply of vitamin D uh, now, but come next March, uh, get out there in the garden, roll up those trouser legs and those um, shorts and uh, go and get some free stuff. As you mentioned, the NHS does recommend that we supplement vitamin D. But what about other supplements? Should I be taking, say, vitamin C? Or, you know, when you go into a pharmacy, there's whole shelves and shelves of different supplements you can take. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm uh, generally very cynical about um, supplements and I don't take anything. I take some vitamin D. Uh, It obviously depends. I've tried to get to the bottom of how common... Uh, vitamin deficiencies are because obviously on the whole taking vitamins if you've already got sufficient vitamins is a complete not a waste of time your body will you know pass them out there is some evidence uh, for zinc uh, for the cold there have been a number of randomized controlled trials showing that if you take uh, zinc tablets it will cut the duration of the cold by about two days from seven to five Vitamin C, not really worth it unless there are a subgroup of people uh, who seem to benefit from vitamin uh, C supplements, and they are marathon runners and extreme sports people. They're the people who, for whatever reasons, uh, if they get a cold, then they do benefit from taking vitamin C. The rest of us, no. Uh, But what's very difficult to get at the bottom of is just how common insufficiencies and deficiencies are because they're not really measured. Um, we were always told at medical school, doesn't happen, you know, the diet, it's fine. But the reality is when you start looking into it, it's generally not fine. Um, so, for example, we know that um, women uh, between the ages of sort of 20 and 55, typically high risk of iron deficiency because of uh, menstruation and things like that. Uh, we know that if you're vegan or indeed even vegetarian, and a lot of people are going in that direction, high risk of iron deficiency, and particularly a vitamin, vitamin B12, folate deficiency. Very high risk of that indeed, uh, because you don't get it from your diet very much unless you're eating, you know, uh, there are not many. Yeast uh, is one of the few sources of vitamin uh, B12. 
Most of it comes from meat. Um, and otherwise, uh, there are things like uh, things like um, zinc, as I was saying, which you can be a bit deficient in. Uh, the other thing is, surprisingly enough, that if you are overweight or obese, and obviously a significant section of the population are increasingly so, uh, they, and there have been a number of small studies, I saw one recently in Australia, showing that they tended to be deficient in a range, quite a large range of um, vitamins and minerals, uh, not vitamin C. That's what everyone seemed to have a lot of, but vitamin D, magnesium, iron, selenium, uh, and a whole range of stuff. And so uh, they were suggesting, the researchers were suggesting that this could also be kind of driving appetite. Your body is aware it's deficient, and so it's Reach, particularly true for calcium. There seems to be a specific appetite for calcium. And in, again, in this population, they seem to be deficient. And again, one of the um, things about uh, moving to a vegetarian or vegan diet is that uh, the sources of calcium are not as obvious as they are if you're drinking cow's milk or something like that. So a lot of deficiency in calcium. And again, you know, uh, it's a really complicated and utterly fascinating area. And I could rabbit on about vitamins and minerals for hours. Uh, but uh, the danger is there just isn't the data there at the moment. And it's kind of really weird because another thing is, for example, a lot of vitamins people get now uh, come from supplements, well, basically from fortified cereals. So cereals, they bung in lots of extra stuff. And uh, I was talking to a nutritionist and I was saying, look, these sugary cereals are not terribly good. Why are you advising kids eat them? And she said, basically, if they didn't get the vitamins from the cereals, they wouldn't be getting them from anywhere in their diet. Um, so uh, I hold my nose and they can sort of knock back the sugary, chocolatey things. But at least amongst that, they're going to get something. Uh, and uh, that's a kind of rather sad indictment of our food system uh, that people are getting, you know, a significant amount of their vitamins from uh, bread, from flour, from uh, fortified stuff rather than from uh, fruit, vegetables or whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of sad. But I was pleased to see they're going to start uh, fortifying with folic acid. They've just announced that's the latest thing they're going to do uh, because, again, we know that's linked, particularly in pregnant women, to a very high risk or an increased risk of uh, neural tube defects. And um, I've been banging on about that for 25 years. I did a film about it 25 years ago saying it's about time we did it because lots of other countries did it and learned by whole 25 years later, they've actually eventually done it. <laughs> We've talked about uh, quite a few different lifestyle changes here, um, and you test them out, don't you, as well as the member of the public? Absolutely. Some of them I've kind of already been doing. Some of them I um, give a go in a way I haven't done before. So I'd sort of half-heartedly thought about having cold chars, uh, but it wasn't until we decided to do the item on cold chars uh, that I thought I'd better give it a go. And uh, one of my sons has been doing it very enthusiastically for about a year now, uh, and uh, he impressed us all by going for a swim in the Thames on Christmas Day. So, yeah, quite. Uh, so it's never struck me as terribly appealing, uh, but, you know, I thought it's easy in the sense that it's short and brutal, and you get over and done with. And I, I like swimming in the sea. I've done some cold water swimming. I had a really sort of odd incident, which I can tell you about, but uh, cold water swimming, and that which falls into some of the downsides of cold water immersion. But yeah, I absolutely uh, started to embrace the cold shower, and um, here I am six months later, and I'm still doing them. 
So were there any of these changes that really surprised you by how much they worked? I think the one that, um, well, a couple of things. I mean, yeah, you know, um, with the cultures, I was surprised by how quickly I adapted to them. Uh, I did. I do actually feel sort of braced. I do feel kind of cheerful. I do feel invigorated after the culture. Um, I only stay in for about uh, a minute. And the way I, my wife who does them, she just kind of endures. So the idea is you stay in there for long enough so that your uh, breathing slows down. So you will start to hyperventilate. I go in, um, I ha- start off with a warm shower, uh, and then I kind of uh, wash myself in the warm water, and then I turn it on to cold. And then I sing um, heartily uh, for about uh, 45 seconds to a minute, and then I emerge. Uh, whereas um, Cla- Claire just kind of stands there and just sort of embraces the cold. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, now the benefits are—they're mm, not very, very clear. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence about the benefits of cold water in terms of things like depression and anxiety, and there are people who swear by it. Um, and there is, as I said, quite a lot of anecdotal evidence around there. Uh, there is um, one. A uh, randomized control trial looking at the impact of it on your risk of getting a cold or flu. And that was done in Holland and they, it was an online experiment, which I think had about two or 3,000 people take part. And they were randomly allocated to either continuing having a sort of warm shower every morning or a one minute cold shower or a, in fact, I think it was 30 second cold shower or it was a one and a half minute to two minute cold shower. And then they looked to see how many had, you know, come down with a flu over the subsequent winter and also whether they took time off work. And what they found is people having the cold shower, and it didn't matter if it was 30 seconds or two minutes, uh, there was a lower incident. So that was kind of a, you know, one of the few proper studies that's been done in this area. So um, I haven't had a cold so far, but um, whether that's anything to do with the showers, who knows? Uh, but, uh, yeah. Uh, it's. Um, I continue to do it, although it doesn't necessarily get easier. But I was swimming in the sea um, last weekend, so clearly my tolerance to the cold, uh, and that was sort of mid-October, uh, my tolerance to cold is obviously reasonably high. Okay, thank you. And we'll talk about the science of that a bit in the next episode. But just to wrap up on this episode, I'd just like to ask, if you had to recommend three of these uh, lifestyle changes to the whole population, which three would you choose? Okay, I think I would go for the brisk early morning walk. I think the benefits of that, particularly if you can do it in green spaces. Um, I would also recommend uh, that you uh, drink more water. So uh, we went into that one and um, the recommendation was essentially to drink a glass of water when you wake up, a glass of water with um, each of your meals. Uh, And uh, I found that, you know, it fills you up a bit, uh, but I thought I was drinking enough and I probably wasn't. And uh, the recommendation is, how do you know if you're drinking enough? Well, basically you should be weeing six or seven times a day. So that's my new rule. Along with five a day, you should be going for seven a day, seven wheeze a day, uh, and uh, that'll do you. And the third one is probably uh, the press-ups. Um, so uh, we explore the science of press-ups and particularly resistance training. But um, I, I won't say I like doing press-ups, but I'm quite good at them. So I stick to them. And again, there was an interesting study done in firemen, or fire officers rather, uh, where they showed that um, those who could do about, uh, I think it was uh, 
more than 40 press-ups in their 30s, their risk of dying of a heart attack 20 years later was significantly lower than those who could manage less than 10. So um, the press-up or the push-up, depending on what you want to call it, is kind of one of the best all-round exercises you can do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Dr. Michael Mosley. If you want to know more about the health hacks we've discussed in this episode, check out Just One Thing on BBC Sounds. Or to learn even more about the easy ways to improve your health and the scary experience Michael had whilst cold water swimming, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The November issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out this week. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Our friends over at Radio Times have interviewed Professor Brian Cox about his upcoming show, Universe. If you're interested in hearing that interview, make sure to subscribe to the brand new Radio Times podcast.